Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. All right, everyone, welcome to episode two of Dirty Drinks, and we are super excited to have our very first guest on today, Kate Tyner. Um, Dr. Starlin, are you as excited as I am to have Kate on? Super excited. This is great. Uh, we, we're, we're really looking forward to having guests on uh, that, uh, that we certainly look up to in the world of infection prevention and infectious disease, and I've known Kate for years. Uh, working through different uh, modalities with her, either with um, ICAP or even going back to the Infection Control Network and things like that. So very excited to have her on today. Yeah, so uh, welcome, Kate. Thank you. That would have been funny if Dr. Starlin was like, no, I'm not excited. I was hoping for Oprah Winfrey today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we couldn't get Fauci. He was close. (laughs) So you got the JV team. It wasn't Fauci, but we'll get Kate Tyner instead. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. Even if I was like the B choice, I'm completely flattered to be here. It's a pretty good B choice as Fauci or Kate. I mean. <laughs> you flatter me so you can ply me with hard questions. All right. Yeah. So Kate, will you um, just introduce yourself, tell our listeners uh, what you do, a little bit about your background. Okay. Kate Tyner. I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for about 20 years now, um, but I've been working in infection control since 20, or 2005 and have been certified since 2008. Um, and I really enjoy working in infection prevention. I'm really pleased that I have gotten to have a lot of different experiences. I currently supervise the Nebraska ICAP team, but over the course of my history, have worked for ICAP. Um, I had also been the IP for the ambulatory locations at Nebraska Medicine, and then prior to that for the inpatient um, programs as part of that team at Nebraska Medicine. Awesome. And um, you are an RN. So what kind of drew you into that medical field and then infection prevention? Why did you decide to be an IP? Um, It was um, like, really, I got lucky, I think. Uh, I was. I did not even necessarily come to nursing as a person who was as passionate about it as I should have been. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I did a lot of career counseling as a, um, like a senior in high school, et cetera. And at the time I was a lifeguard and I just really kind of enjoyed the first aid aspects of that and enjoyed these ideas of if something terrible happens, knowing what to do. Um, And so that led me to looking at nursing kind of casually. And even though I didn't have like stars and rainbow um, ideas about nursing, what I loved about it is um, there was lots of different types of nursing. So I felt like it was a very safe career choice that I could try lots of different things in nursing. And luckily, that's exactly how my career has gone. That's terrific. Now, are you from Bellevue originally, or did you just grow up there? I, I mean, we're both from Bellevue, in all yes. disclosure here. So I, mm-hmm. I, I knew that ahead of time, but I wasn't sure if you lived your whole life in Bellevue. I am. I consider myself a passionate like diplomat 
of the city of Bellevue, Nebraska. I have grown up. Um, I live probably one mile now from where I grew up. Um, I went through the Bellevue Public Schools from kindergarten to senior high school and related to your podcast earlier, like I still have friends who I knew from kindergarten and, you know, like the Facebook group and everything of all these people who have known each other forever. Um, And so I, for nursing school, it's interesting to go through the University of Nebraska system. You can go all the way through in Lincoln or you, um, but you can't go all the way through at UNMC. And so I went to Lincoln and I thought I would stay um, at University of Nebraska Lincoln to do all my nursing care. But I actually I worked at a golf course for nine years, kind of in between like being a student and being a nurse. That was the most experience I have with anything besides nursing is working at a golf course. And I worked with a couple of guys who were pre-med. Um, one at Creighton and one at um, university. And they're like, why would you leave? Why would you um, not stay in Omaha for nursing school? There's so many more opportunities that you'll have here compared to Lincoln. You know, there's the transplant center. There's these, all these different nursing schools. There's pediatrics, et cetera. And I just, I frankly didn't have that much knowledge of the system that I was like, this is a great idea. And so I looked into it. It was easier to go through school um, to get into the college at the med center. And it turned out to be a really good pathway for me. So here I am. And so I've stayed in Omaha forever. The rest is history, right? The rest is history. And that I will say Nebraska medicine is not like laziness of, well, it's better here um, in not wanting to leave. I have had incredible experiences in working at Nebraska medicine, even when I worked in ICU and it wasn't, it was a good job. It just wasn't the best job for me. What I appreciated about it is there was always a multidisciplinary team. I have never not worked in a place where my voice as a nurse, where my knowledge base wasn't somehow consequential. I've always felt like that. And that's what I love working about the med center. And even when then I transferred over to infection control, it was wonderful because I got to be part of a community, a department that was multidisciplinary. You know, we have pharmacists who do antibiotic stewardship. We have medical directors who do infectious diseases. We have nurses. And for many years, I worked with um, my my office mate was a medical laboratory scientist. So I love that I've always had a part of a bigger team where my knowledge was different than everybody else's, but like all of our information together made something bigger. Yeah, I think that's key for especially the young uh, providers of medicine, whatever they're going to do in medicine to to figure out is that there's no part of the whole chain that's more important than any other. We all have different roles and we all have to have input and, uh, um, and work together to figure out what's going on with patients and help them get better. It's, it's definitely a team approach. And I agree with that about Nebraska medicine. It's definitely very team oriented. And I know as a physician, we rely on nurses and other specialists to help us, uh, figure all these things out because we're not there all day. You guys are there all day. Um, And so it it definitely makes a big difference having a a knowledgeable, experienced nurse who's not afraid to be a part of the team and and put in their two cents worth to to get somebody better. I would say it wasn't always um, an easy path, but I would say in working with physicians over time, um, you know, I learned how to be a better teammate. You know, I, the people like Dr. Van Schoenefeld and Dr. Rupp, you know, you learn to ask questions in such a way you don't get to always ask for the answer, 
but you might be able to ask a question like, I'm not sure I understand that all the way. Can you help me with a resource? You know, can you help me? Like, how did you know that? And um, that I consider myself a person who loves to learn. And sometimes just asking those why questions and going to find information on your own, um, it, it really makes you a better team member. And that's how it's not just that you get to call the shots always. It's that you get to learn and grow from your partners as well. Yeah, that's that's always a great point. And working on this team, I just want to echo everything that Kate said. It's been a great experience, even though I haven't been here for very long. But I'm very glad to be a part of this awesome team. Right. And that was part of when we started ICAP. Um, you know, I was at a point in my career where I really got to ask myself, you know, like what has been valuable to me to grow up in infection prevention and how might I take that to other people? You know, and as we we and for listeners who don't necessarily know, we're contractors for the state health department. And in the early days, the grant money was meant to go for us to assess infection control in lots of different programs. And what that was really like a, a good learning experience that I was spoiled. I was spoiled rotten as an IP that I had such a rich team to draw from when I didn't understand something. I had excellent resources, not only in the people I worked with, but that I had a library I could look at, that we had access to journals, all those things. And I thought to myself, what can what can this granted entity bring to these IPs? It's somehow to give them some of what I've enjoyed my whole career. And so that's, I hope that you guys are having that experience at ICAP that to be part of a multidisciplinary team where everybody brings something valuable and that we get to ask each other questions and learn from each other. That's, that's what I would say is, the special sauce. And I want us to have that. Agree. I mean, I, I think ICAP's been amazing. And it, it would be interesting to hear going back to the beginning where you guys kind of started from and how the idea kind of came to fruition and, and you guys ended up doing this. Because I think you were there at the very beginning, weren't you? Right. It was um, me, our staff assistant named Sue Beach, Margaret Drake, we had a database analyst named Ben and a computer and a paperclip. That's all we had when we first started <laughs> and a lot of deliverables. Um, but really the goals at the time is CDC actually was very, um, I think it was a really incredible move by the government that they said it was after Ebola. And we learned during Ebola, the hard lesson was the healthcare system wasn't ready for a contagious communicable disease in a lot of ways. That wasn't just hospitals. That was nursing homes, that was dental offices, that's outpatient clinics. We were really caught off guard by that. And so the original funding was meant to say like, how far off the mark are we? And so CDC had these tools where you would go out and you would assess different healthcare environments. And so the big um, challenge with that is how do you engender trust that you can even get invited to do that? Um, and the second part is, why would people do that if it wasn't worth something something to them? And so Margaret Drake and I, who Margaret was very instrumental in that, is uh, when we go, what are we trying to do? Is what, you know, not only would we ask people what's going on in their program, but we would try to act like sisters of infection control. Of This is how Margaret did it at CHI. This is how Kate did it at Nebraska Medicine. That for every question on these complex CDC tools, there was a couple different answers and, you know, a couple different ways to solve the problem. And that was our vision at the time. And we figured if we could be a little bit helpful, we'll always get maybe one more invitation 
And that's what it was at the time, just invitation one at a time until 200 facilities later, we've been a lot of places in the state. And if if the CDC was looking backwards at what went well, you know, there was no teams like that prior to Ebola. And by the time COVID hit, we had made these relationships with teams to answer basic questions that we were really in a good place in Nebraska because we had that funding to make those relationships and be available to them to then respond to COVID. So I think in that way, I hope to our funding bodies, that was really what they intended for us to be able to do. So you brought up a really good point, Kate, about some of those CDC recommendations and the questions they ask on the iCard tools that, you know, there, there may be more than one answer, more than one correct answer. And so when you go out into facilities, what is your strategy when you're looking at um, addressing barriers for those facilities when they have, um, you know, different answers than you've seen in the past? So we've been in a lot of different facilities. And so you can imagine um, our intention, our intended use in some facilities is very different than others. At the very best end of the spectrum, you know, in a facility that's bigger, that has like a well-trained infection control team, um, they're already performing at a pretty high level. At that point, you're helping them, you know, they have self-identified barriers. Um, They're having trouble with their hand hygiene data, whether they don't know it's enough or um, they don't trust it. And so we can go in and that's where we'll pull higher up people from the program. That would be a time where we would invite a person like Dr. Starlin or Dr. Van Schoenefeld to come in and help look at those things from a really high level. How do we like impact? How do we get them to the very next step? That's one end of the spectrum. Unfortunately, a lot of places were at the far end of the spectrum where our goal when we left the facility was, do you understand what you're doing is unsafe? And do you have a plan to make that right as soon as we can? And we've had both kinds of experiences. And um, Margaret Drake and I, like, we could do like good cop, bad cop. We got kind of good at that. Were you the good cop or were you the bad cop? Um, I think at the time, Margaret came out as the bad cop. And once I figured out what she was doing, I was like, okay, next time maybe I'll be able to do that. But the facility was, um, we were making a recommendation that had to do with ultrasound probes. They were not cleaning their ultrasound probes appropriately. And these were ultrasound probes that went into body crevices, that these are things that because of the surfaces they're touching, they should be high level disinfected. And the facility, it was my impression they were asking questions but they were making excuses. And I think like that was the wonderful thing about having another IP with me is she's hearing them like pushing back on the recommendation. We can't do it for this reason. We can't do it for that reason. And I was trying to answer those questions kind of going down a rabbit hole. And that's when Margaret finds, she, uh, she said, stop. Do you realize what you're doing is unsafe? This is, you can hurt people this way. And that kind of reset the conversation and you know, we made them understand, you know, there has been outbreaks related to this. Let's talk about that. And that made people kind of stop and say, okay. And by the time we left, they had a plan um, to address what they were doing. That's great. I mean, I don't hope you guys, uh, you and Margaret and everybody that, you know, was involved with ICAP appreciates how many different facilities and therefore people within the state and region that you guys have touched and helped out with. It's pretty amazing. All the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I don't think uh, the average person or maybe even the average provider 
realizes all the things that goes on behind the scenes that infection preventionists have a role in, uh, in, in helping the facilities and, and ultimately take care of people and make sure that it's done in a safe manner. Yeah, and I've heard, Kate, you talk about this before. Um, can you maybe talk to our listeners about how important you think infection prevention is in a facility? Yes, I'll tell you what I have. Um, I have kids, you know, I have elementary school age kids and um, I have been invited to talk on career day here and there. And I also have a teacher for a sister. So again, I've, I've, I've gone to, and so I have to really think to myself is um, how have I explained my job in the simplest terms? And the way I explain it in the simplest terms is, you know, you imagine a large hospital where the sickest people in the city, they converge upon this place every single day, the very sickest people. How do we make sure that those very sick people, not just with cancer and things like that, but things that you can give to a healthcare worker or another patient, how do we make sure that they aren't infecting healthcare workers and other patients? And that is the job of infection control. And it's not as simple as um, just wearing gloves to deal with those people. Part of it has to do with communicating to the healthcare workers around them what the risks are. Part of it has to do with like the ultrasound probes, everything that we use that can be used on multiple patients has to be cleaned and disinfected appropriate so that we're not passing germs along. My sister calls me a doorknob swabber and I have tried to correct her on multiple occasions that that is not my job. Um, but that is in the very simplest terms, that's the way I explain infection prevention to people is really you think about the very worst diseases that happen and how do we keep people from getting sick at work? Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great description and breaks it down to where, you know, your elementary school kids mm -hmm. or middle school kids can certainly understand what you do because it is, is one of those things that's hard to explain. I think they're familiar with like what a doctor does or what a mm -hmm. nurse in a clinic does. But when you're trying to, to speak through these things, I think uh, people don't have any clue uh, what, uh, what, you know, what your job is. I'll tell you what it, like when my daughter was really young in the brownies, I remember like one little activity we did, you know, you have glow germ lotion. There's also glow germ powder. I had a doll and I, we took the doll and, um, I put like a bandage on her leg or something. And I put tons of that glow powder in this bandage. And so I asked the little girls like, oh, this little baby has been sick. You know, what could be going on? And they, you know, they took a look at the doll. They decided to take off the bandage to see what was going on, et cetera. And they came up with, you know, what they thought the plan would be. And then we got out the black light and we looked at all the little girls' faces, clothes, <laughs> hands are coated in the glow dust. And then I told them that that's my job is to make sure that that doesn't happen to the doctors and nurses. And they got it. I think those brownies at least got it. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. One thing I was going to ask you is you mentioned that your sister is a teacher. And ever since I've known you, you have been very involved in teaching others and uh, reaching out and presenting and everything like that. And it always seemed so natural to you. You know, like most of us, you said it took you a while to figure out what you wanted to do when you grow up. And, you know, I don't know that I still know what I want to do when I grow up, but that's okay. Um, but it just is natural. How does that come to you? You're, you're, you're just, uh, you just talk and you educate and it seems so effortless. That's a really nice compliment. So thank you. And it's, um, my dad is the teacher. 
So my dad was a high school teacher and a coach um, growing up. And so you can imagine that's not easy for the girls who go to the high school and have a dad for us to get dates and stuff like that. Um, but uh, alas, it worked out. Um, but I, you know, I always admired my dad was like a sociology and government teacher. So very practical um, topics. And he was very much like a sharer of information. And um, as an adult, we've talked about that, uh, you know, and it, not to wax philosophical, but we're also very Catholic people that, you know, you talk about when, you know, you got the call, quote unquote, got the call. And that's like that something in your life happened to know what you were meant to do. And um, he talks about getting the call. He was in law school and he was like, this is not where I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be teaching people about the way the government works, et cetera. And similar, when I was working in ICU, um, that is a, an enormous responsibility. And I have incredible respect for the people who do it. What wasn't a good fit for me is that some people thrive on that adrenaline of patients coming in, patients coming in. But to me, it felt like it never stopped. It's like, when will these bodies stop piling up? And I want to eventually work in a place where maybe I could do something to make the problem stop. And that's where infection control became um, a really uh, valid place for me to work. That's what started my interest that in day shifts, um, that maybe I could have an impact where I wasn't just always at the bottom end and like solving, you know, just passing through, passing through, passing through, but working at a different point in the system where you might prevent something. So with your experience as a, you know, a clinical RN and working through and getting into infection prevention, um, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen? <laughs> Too <laughs> numerous to detail. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you about a kind of an embarrassing, uh, there's lots of embarrassing Kate stories. Um, when I was uh, ambulatory, um, like the infection preventionist for the clinics, I remember being in like the surgery clinic and we were, you know, you go through environmental rounds, you look at how people are storing their equipment, et cetera, meeting the people who work there and do the job. And so I was rounding, I think with the lead MA in the clinic and we were looking at, um, the storage of devices and whatnot. And I was talking to her, this is the first time I've ever met her. I'm trying to make a good impression. Um, so we're looking at the storage and I'm looking at this cupboard and in the cupboard, there is oatmeal next to the anoscopes. <laughs> and I'm presuming that the people on the call can put together where the anoscopes go. <laughs> you would not want the anoscopes near your oatmeal. <laughs> and I, I told the guy, I said, now this, this is a problem. <laughs> We cannot have the oatmeal and the anoscopes right next to each other. Um, you get a surveyor in here or somebody with more authority than me. We're going to have trouble. Let's move the oatmeal now. Let's find a new place for the oatmeal right today. And she said, Kate, you don't think we eat the oatmeal, do you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> It's not for eating. Apparently, this is oatmeal that they use to, it's like a poultice uh, after certain banding procedures. And so I said, okay, that was an excellent lesson for me. However, let's put on that box, not for food, 
Let's make it very clear <laughs> that this is not food next to the anoscopes. And so um, that was a that was a fun um, but embarrassing tale of being an infection preventionist. Not always right. You're just not always right every day. <laughs> My eyes must have been like dinner plates. We have got to move this oatmeal. <laughs> That's too funny. So uh, what is one thing that you're most passionate about as an infection preventionist? That is a good question. I think to Dr. Starlin's earlier point, you know, I know the limitations of what a group like ICAP can do or the limitations of what regulatory can enforce, right? And so the only way that we can affect those things is to have really good training for the people who are on the ground. Um, and so I think that's why it's, I've been really passionate about being involved with the Nebraska Infection Control Network and the courses for primary infection prevention or um, ICAP and being able to educate people is that, you know, I really, those things that keep people safe, that training for people should be free. You know, um, being an infection preventionist is difficult. Groups like APIC are incredibly important um, and they have such a huge purpose, but to some degree, like what's the entry level that we say, like everybody who does this job should get this basic amount of information. Because I think if that's the case, we will be that much more able to keep people safe. And I think dental is an environment that's a very good example of that, is how do we have this entry level of understanding that everybody has some information about how to keep people safe. And so I would say like the education of people who do the work, I would say is probably what I'm most passionate about. Yeah, that's super important. Yeah, I was gonna ask you what, uh, if, you, if Kate could, uh control something about how infection prevention was spread out. It sounds like that would be a, a good answer for that question as well. I guess another question is, is how do we get young people interested in infection prevention, infection control, those kinds of things that honestly, they aren't glamorous, right? I mean, we might have some kind of notoriety now during a pandemic, but my guess is, is that in a year or two, when hopefully we're through COVID, that we'll fade back into the background and people won't realize we're doing what we're doing again. Uh, but how, how do we get people involved in that? I think that's a really good question. And I think about, you know, it has to be a job that people have the capability to do. And I think in some environments, the job is almost impossible. Right. Um, you know, I think about places like long term care um, where people aren't they don't have devoted time to do infection prevention. You know, how do you do your job if you're not even given the hours in the day to do the job and you're being pulled to patient care? And so um, I think in order to get young people to the field, I think that as an industry, we have to make infection prevention a little less impossible. You know, I think in bigger acute care centers, we've done a pretty, we've done a better job with that. And I think day by day, I think there's a lot of IPs that would say, eh, not today. It did not seem lesser. It didn't seem possible today. Um, but I think that's, and I, so I think regulatory wise, like CMS has tried to do that. That was the effort pre-COVID is making it so that there was protected time to do infection prevention in those environments. And I think the same thing should happen in places like dental 
in clinic environments where, you know, we have to protect the time of people so that it's an attractive and possible job um, to draw people to it. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, society and everybody need to decide that this is vitally important to healthcare. We need to pay for it, fund it, and protect the time so that they can do the job correctly and appropriately for whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And I think for the listeners on the call, I think maybe if you don't understand healthcare, you know, like the way departments are funded has a lot to do with revenue generation, right? Like you make yourself a job because you go and you take care of patients and there's a fee associated with that, right? Infection preventionists, like the hospitals essentially have to devote money from other things to be able to have an infection prevention department. And it's incredibly important. And so that's why there have to be regulations to promote it. I think that's why there have to be strong leaders in the field to show its importance. Um, but yes, I think that that is, if the listeners could understand, it's not just the person that you see who is putting their fingers in your mouth or taking your temperature or taking your blood pressure. There's a team behind those people who ensure that your environment is safe and that, you know, the person who was in the room before you with scabies or, you know, um, something else really contagious, I don't know, but that the room is safe for you so that you don't get that thing when you come into the room. I think too, there seems to be, um, I guess a little bit of pigeonholing as far as um, infection preventionists go. I was really super lucky that the ICAP team took a chance on me as a dental assistant, but normally to get hired on as an infection preventionist, you have to have an RN and you have to be certified, CIC certified. Um, but, you know, I know a couple of other ladies who are not RNs that are in great infection preventionists. So I think maybe, um, you know, some of that needs to open up as well. Um, and people, you know, understanding that there are other modalities that could be really good for infection prevention. I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. And that, again, it goes back to what I was saying before is I've had the blessing of working on multidisciplinary teams my whole career and had like had those learning experiences, like working with you of things like I understand instrument sterilization, but I don't understand the complexities of the dental environment and what instruments you use. Um, hand pieces are a really great example of something that I kind of understand how it works, but I don't understand, you know, it took you coming to the team to kind of explain to me that there's a whole nother machine for the lubrication and things like that. And with that diverse um, team of people who understand things, we get closer to what should the requirements be? You know, we need those experts on the team to help explain how to make these things possible. Another one of my embarrassing stories was when I worked in the infection prevention department at the hospital. Um, in the olden days, we had this fun thing. Do you guys know what the MMWR is? It's like one of the most depressing publications in the world. And it, it used to come in paper and it would circulate through the department of all the outbreaks that were happening in the country. And the CDC, these are notes from the field. And one of my friends in the department and I, she sat at a different desk, we would circle articles for each other <laughs> that we thought were particularly gross or like, hmm, you're going to want to read this, Kate. <laughs> so um, I remember in the MMWR, there was um, when there were outbreaks associated with certain alcohol swabs. And I remember reading that and I like thinking out loud, and I was sitting with my friend who's a medical laboratory technologist, Chris. And I said, what the hell grows in alcohol? 
how in the world are we having an outbreak related to alcohol? And she looks at me and she says, Kate, there are a lot of things that grow in alcohol. And it's like, this is a person who I learned a lot about drug resistance from. This is a person who could help with things like that. It's also, we also worry about exposures, you know, protecting people from, you know, job related injury and whatnot. We need to have those people on the team so we can do that well. So again, I've been really blessed that I get to work with those people. And the best thing I can do is carry that forward and say, I need to be on a team that continues to have those people on it. Yeah, great. It certainly seems like you approach things with a sense of humility as well. And you, you know what you don't know and you, know, and you just roll with it and move on because you're right. There's nothing more humbling than when you come across something and you're like, I have no idea what it is. I think it's what oh, no, it, it is, is. but <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. All the time. yes. <laughs> that reminds me of another story I could tell you guys. Go for it. It's a we love story. stories. We love stories. You guys, Dr. Rupp is a bit revered, right? He's a really good guy to work with. I remember uh, I was on call in the hospital and we would get pages when we would have people who needed negative air. And that usually had to do with TB at the hospital. And so I remember getting a page. Of course, it's on a Friday afternoon because all the interesting pages happen on Friday afternoons in infection control. And I saw the request for a negative air room and I'm on my way to look up the person and I recognized the name. And I thought to myself, I said, this person was in negative air the last time I was on call a month ago. And why would this person be coming back to negative air? And so I was like, hmm, this doesn't seem very good. And so I went and looked them up. And this is a person who's been on treatment for TB, but their symptoms are still really, really bad and getting worse. And so um, in those in the olden days, I could go literally across the hall and knock on Dr. Rupp's door. And he would often be found with his feet on the desk when he wasn't doing clinical service and whatnot. And I would say, so I got this thing. I looked up this patient. They, uh, they were here a month ago for TB treatment and they're back and they're worse. I said, I'm worried. Like, is this like, could this be drug resistant TB? And he, um, you know, who's the name? He said, and he said, you know, call this person in the lab because he knew who was looking at, you know, all the isolates and things like that. And he said, okay, I'm going to make a phone call. In the meantime, look up everything you can find about drug resistant TB. Let's get back together in 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God, I thought you had the answer to this. So, um, yes, that's how, that's how working on the team exactly when, when you don't know the answer. Ask someone else and know it might get kicked back to you. <laughs> so good times. Yes. That brings up a really great point, Kate. Like you don't have to know all the answers all the time. If anything, I feel like whether it's infection prevention or other things, maybe it's cooking, right? Like there's nothing wrong with Googling something and saying, uh, tell me more about this. And you just have to know like who the reputable sources are of information. And I think it's very important with COVID, right? Like I'm not looking for COVID answers on YouTube necessarily, but if I don't know the answer, and I mean, for everybody on the call, I have like multiple CDC and CMS sites bookmarked on my computer. Like I don't know the answer moment to moment. I have to look it up a lot of the time, um, but you have to know where your resources are. Um, you know, and working at a good place, is that the library? Is that your APIC um, journals? Is that the outbreak database? So I think that that I would encourage younger IPs to kind of like, you know, set your bookmarks, know who you can go to for questions. 
ICAP is one of those places. Um, and, you know, who's a trusted source? That was a theme on one of our meetings recently. We were talking about the Delta variant, right? And yes, um, you know, there just isn't a whole lot of research out there that we can find. Right. And, and then I think that was a great conversation, Sarah, because it really like working on a multidisciplinary team and you and Dr. Starlin were so nice when you, I came on the call, like that, you, you know, like you think I might be a person who knows about infection prevention, but I find myself like with a lot of the COVID stuff, what am I missing? You know, like I hear people ask questions about Delta variant and I don't know the answer off the top of my head. And um, I had said to one of our other medical directors, Dr. Berlita on a call, I'm, can you help recommend a resource for this? I feel like I'm missing these updates and I, I need to be better. And he said, Kate, that's the problem with COVID. He says, you're not going to find it in JAMA or BMJ. And CDC has some things, but a lot of what we're finding out are these like small case reports where we're, we're making inferences based on this small amount of data. And that's the best we can do. And um, so I think that that the public, unfortunately, sees that as a flaw and doesn't understand that science takes years to like come about so we can be confident about our answers. And we're working in a time with COVID where we have never had this much uncertainty in our lives. You know, there's a, a brand new germ that like is continuing to mutate and change that it's like we're practicing on top of quicksand that, you know, we're doing our best on a very unstable infrastructure. I mean, we have great CDC, we have great hospitals, but it's not like we can just open a book and follow a recipe card. We're trying to work on a little article right now that can kind of break down the variants a little bit uh, into simple or a little more simple means. I mean, it, it got to the point where, you know, B117 and uh, P1, and there's just too many different numbers and decimal places and everything else. And so I like the fact that the WHO moved on to alpha, beta, gamma, delta, just so you can kind of have a little bit less complexity to it, which I think helps. At least it helps in my mind, because I think the simpler, the better for me. Anything for us, Kate? It's been a great having you on. This has been a great wide-ranging discussion. Uh, we're certainly, uh, again, delighted that you joined us. Hmm. I would say, how about that? I'll make it a tough question. So we talk a lot lately about um, like the dental environment, just because infection control and some of the regulations are they're a little newer there. Besides dental, the United States of America, what do you foresee as the frontier of infection prevention, whether that is a type of facility or a topic? What do you think is the frontier? All the tough questions go to Sarah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Dr. Starlin. Ooh, that's a really good question, Kate. Um, I think with all of the, um, the holistic and new age medicine type stuff that's going on right now. You know, right. I think that that is a, an area that's often overlooked when it comes to infection prevention. You're absolutely right. So, you know, you go to like a spa or whatever, one of those uh, places with the float tanks, mm -hmm. you know, what? Like who's what, managing the chemicals right. in the float tank? Who, who's managing right. that, right? What kind of infection control guidance do they have, if any? 
uh, what sort of regulations do they have? You know, you go to like, um, I often think of tattoo and piercing shops as well. You know, a, a, a licensed tattoo and piercing shop, they have infection control regulations that they have to follow. But if you go into like uh, a place at the mall that pierces your ears with the little guns, not mm-hmm. so much. So right. yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. Similar. Yep. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say that's a great answer, Sarah. And I would say the <laughs> other side of that coin, um, like kind of where the flaws might exist, like where might answers exist? You know, um, like I think uh, long ago when I was still doing hospital infection control, you know, maggot therapy, leech therapy, um, those are still things that, you know, like have a place in medicine. And I think one of the other things that was kind of coming about years ago was medicinal honey. You know, what can that do? And I, that's so it, it makes you wonder when you consider like stewardship, you know, that I'm going to reuse my phrase again. I'm wearing it out. But the other side of the infection control coin is like antibiotic stewardship. You know, what types of therapies are there out there that are useful that are not antibiotics? And I think that, um, you know, we don't want quackery um, and, you know, mid-science, but, you know, what of other natural products that could really help people? Yeah, I think that's- you prescribe maggots, Dr. Starlin? No, but I've seen them used and and leeches certainly on uh, things like skin grafts or or flaps back before we had wound back therapies and everything else that are put on them now. I think a big thing going forward is, is we keep putting more and more things into people, more and more devices, more and more uh, whatever it is that we're trying to treat. Um, if you look back at infection prevention, you know, go back to, you know, in the 80s, things kind of took off when MRSA took off and infection prevention was clearly important. And what happened in the 80s was is we started to be able to put in tunnel catheters and lines and everybody and pacemakers and, you know, do dialysis outside of the hospital. So as we've done more to patients and put more of those devices in, then we've started to see more infections related to those, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still in the uh, way back in most of our diagnostic techniques, right? Most of the time we're looking at cultures, we're looking at things that take time and honestly, at the end of the day, aren't the most sensitive uh, in the world. So uh, I think molecular diagnostics, molecular looking at things and how well are we actually sterilizing and disinfecting surfaces that we don't, we don't really know at this point in time. Um, you know, you talked about the glow light stuff that you put on the brownies. I mean, we should actually still in 2021 do that sometimes when we clean rooms, right? right. Um, whereas you think there'd be something that would be more technologically advanced. We can get on the internet and we can have the three of us have a conversation here that we couldn't have done a few years ago, but yet we're still waiting on cultures and things that take 48 hours that they could have done a hundred years ago. So I think there's lots of room for advancement if we can apply some of the technology that we have going forward, that we can do things better. Very cool answer, both of you guys. That was nice to hear. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, You are technically our first guest. Sarah and I don't count. The last talk was just uh, just us talking and and, uh, getting this thing rolling. So you will forever be the first guest. The original? Okay. The original. Then may I'll put that on my resume. Thank you. I was the first guest on Dirty Drinks. <laughs> yeah, you might want to not do that, but that's okay. We appreciate the, the thought. <laughs> well, I had a great time, guys. Thank you for inviting me. 
Yeah. Thanks for coming on with us, Kate. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.